Well, this evening I turn first to Galatians chapter 5 as our starting point for the topical sermon this evening on liberty. And particularly we will be talking about Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. There's a, as there is a chapter in the Westminster Confession on that topic with that title of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. So I turn here to Galatians chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord as he gave to the Apostle Paul and inspired him to write infallibly. And so we have the very word of God. Again, Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And that sends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Now let's seek him in prayer as we begin to consider his word this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed you have given us a written word. And we thank you for the liberty that we have in Christ, freedom from sin and its consequences, from the attempts to make ourselves righteous before you, an attempt which will always fall short. And we thank you that you've also given us liberty of conscience in regard to those things which you have not revealed. And so we ask that you would grant that we might handle these things well, that we would not place ourselves under enslavement to anything else now that we have been freed by Christ, and that we would not violate one another's conscience on those matters where we have liberty. We pray rather that we would use the liberty that we have in Christ to serve you and not as an occasion for sin. We pray that this sermon will be of help to us and the the resources we have in the confession of faith would be of help to us in doing these things as we seek to understand your word and obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by God's providence, we come this evening to the Westminster Confession chapter entitled of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. Now, there's a distinction between the two, as we'll see here tonight. They're not the same, and they can often get confused when in casual conversation people might be talking about Christian liberty. They might say Christian liberty and really mean liberty of conscience, or uh, vice versa. But whatever we read about the history of our nation, 
uh, we can't escape that word, liberty. It's a word that is basically sacred in the history of this nation, and it's a word that's an offense to many others, especially those who would enforce their will on others. Many of our founders got their notions of liberty and of the civil government's responsibility to preserve liberty from the biblical notion of Christian liberty. And that's not to say that all of the founders were Bible-believing Christians or anything of the sort. We can always find many of them who seem to reject much of Scripture. But it's also is to point out that the other extreme view, that, that the nation had no Christian heritage whatsoever and that nobody was thinking biblically whatsoever in the founding of the nation, now that's not quite true either. Um, there were many of our founders who had a notion of liberty that was shaped by Scripture and not simply by Enlightenment philosophy or anything of that sort. Not to say again that many weren't influenced by Enlightenment philosophy, but uh, we might note that one of the most cited sources that the founding fathers of our nation looked to when they were developing the principles of liberty and of a government founded upon the notion of liberty as they were looking to found a new republic uh, was a little book called Lex Rex, which means the law is king. So it's, it's not, a, not the notion that a particular man is king, or that a group of men together are the king, but that the law is king. That is, that, that no one is above the law when a government is functioning correctly. That book was written by a man named Samuel Rutherford. That name might be familiar to many of you. We count him as part of our heritage as covenanters. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish minister who was sent as one of the commissioners to England to advise the Westminster Assembly. And so he had some input into the very confession that we're going to be reading from tonight and agreed with it. The confession addresses the topic of liberty, making the distinction between Christian liberty on the one hand and liberty of conscience on the other. What we mean by Christian liberty is this. This is the first paragraph of that chapter in the Westminster Confession. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and a willing mind. All which were common also to believers under the law, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. So this is not talking about liberty from difficulties in life, 
or freedom from economic distress or political oppression, which is, of course, mostly what we think of when we think of liberty in a political sense. But this is freedom from the guilt of sin and the wrath and curse of God that results from our being lawbreakers. The whole world is under the curse of God for sin. He created the heavens and the earth and filled the earth with all manner of living creatures and then made mankind in his image to represent him in that creation. And so when we fell, the creation fell. That's why Paul says in Romans that in chapter 8 that the creation itself is groaning as in travail, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation itself is, is just is like a, a woman about to give birth in great pain but can't wait for what's going to come as a result of that pain at the end of that painful period. Because the creation is under that curse for sin, you and I can suffer many things in this life. But in Christ, we are free from the ultimate consequences of that sin. As we've been considering in the morning, when we consider resurrection, we know that there will be a time when death itself will be destroyed, and all of the decay and all of all of the consequences of sin, all of the pain and sorrow that we can suffer in this world will be done away with. To such a degree that Paul also says in Romans 8 that the suffering of this present age is not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. God said... If you're going to stand before me, you have to keep my law perfectly. And the soul that sins shall die. And of course, none of us can keep that law perfectly, so we're under that curse. But Christ redeemed us from that curse. He purchased us out from under that curse. He saved us from the penalty that we incur by not keeping God's moral law perfectly. Also, we're free from the dominion of sin. It's present with us still, as we were considering also this morning, where Paul says in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? He, that's his struggle with sin can be seen in that chapter of Romans. We still deal with present sin with us now, but it doesn't rule us any longer. We can actually choose not to sin We won't be perfect in that, this side of heaven. But we always have a way out, Paul tells us. And that's only by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We are out from under that enslavement. So though Satan is called the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, we don't come under his rule any longer. We're free from the sting of death, as we'll see again as we continue 
Lord willing, in the mornings in 1 Corinthians 15. We're free from the sting of death and, and from everlasting damnation. We see in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verses 54 through 57, death is swallowed up in victory, O death. Where is your victory, O grave? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're liberated. We're liberated from the fear of judgment that we know our sins deserve. We're liberated from their consequences and ultimately we'll be liberated from the sin itself. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not some condemnation, not less condemnation, no condemnation. We're free from the restrictive Old Testament ceremonial law, which is what Galatians 5 is about, as we read just a few minutes ago. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And he then goes on to talk about circumcision. Don't go back under the old law, under the old covenant law, that ceremonial law. You're free from that. This is why the confession says that salvation came the same way in the Old Covenant period as it does now in the New Testament, but we are free now from the ceremonial obligations. There were a great many more ceremonial obligations laid upon the Old Covenant church that we are now free from. Christ has fulfilled. Indeed, to go back under them voluntarily is like, as Paul says here, saying, no, actually, I need to save myself. Jesus didn't do enough. And Paul warns there, well, if you go back under that law, just understand you have to keep it all by yourself and perfectly if you're going to save yourself. That law was never meant to teach you how to save yourself. It was meant to teach you that you need a Savior. So put your trust in Jesus. We have freedom of access to God. Hebrews 10.19 We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. That's Christian liberty. It has to do with the freedom from sin and its consequences. Liberty of conscience has to do with the choices that you and I make as God's people who have been freed from sin and death. Uh, What are the things that we're now free to choose? Obviously, we don't have the liberty of conscience to call sin good and to call good evil and say, well, it's just freedom of conscience. This This seems right to me. But we still have to obey God's moral laws. We'll see here. But we do have freedom in regard to things that God has not has neither commanded nor forbidden. As the confession states, God alone is Lord of a conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. So in other words, nobody can add to God's word a regulation that and tell you, you have to keep this to be a righteous person. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commandments out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. And the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. In other words, implicit faith is is saying, I believe this because 
somebody in authority told me so. So, in other words, I, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. If the Pope said it, it's, it must be right. If the church says so, it must be right. Recognizing, rather, that, that God alone is Lord of the conscience, and we look to Scripture to find out what is to bind our conscience and what is not. So we might say that, that we have uh, two principles, uh, one for life in general, and one for worship that is to govern how Christians behave toward one another and toward God. The principle for Christian daily life is what we would call a normative principle. You know, we must do what God commands. We must not do what God forbids. What he has not forbidden, we may do. And of course, there are lots of principles in the New Testament that teach us wisdom for how to choose what's better in a particular uh, circumstance, what is more uh, conducive in a particular situation for the kingdom. As we get into 1 Corinthians 16 in the morning, we'll see that. that Paul had to make judgment calls at times because he had, had to recognize, well, I can't be everywhere at once, so what am I going to prioritize? And, and so the wisest decision, he was free to, to either to go back to Corinth right now or to stay in Ephesus for a while longer. And he chose to stay in Ephesus for a while longer because he saw that there was an opportunity for growth of the kingdom there that he it seemed wiser for him to stay for a while and work toward that before leaving and visiting churches he'd already been to. So we're free to do to make decisions like that. You know what God has neither commanded nor forbidden, you may choose to do or not to do as seems best in the circumstances. So in that sense, it would be the sin of legalism to impose our own convictions that are not commanded in Scripture on someone else. That's the kind of judgmentalism that the Bible tells us that we're not to engage in. <coughs> when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, he's not saying never make a judgment, because then he tells us right after that how to make judgments. But remember that the standard by which you judge, you will be judged by in one sense. What we must not do is, is, say, is elevate our own preferences to the level of some kind of law and say, well, I wouldn't want it that way, I wouldn't do it that way, therefore, it's sin for you to do it that way. If the Bible doesn't say so, then we can't say that. One common example for this that's come up in church history is, is the sin of drunkenness you know, the, and the use of alcohol. The Bible clearly forbids drunkenness. It's a sin to get drunk. It forbids the kind of enslavement we were praying about for someone earlier, being enslaved to a substance like alcohol. The church can discipline and has every right and responsibility to discipline an erring brother or sister who gets drunk, but mere consumption of alcohol without drunkenness is not forbidden in Scripture, and so we don't have the right to forbid it. We might also see it something that Paul deals with in Romans 14. I'll read a little bit from Romans 14 here in a few minutes uh, where he talks about holy days. And this is something that has been the judgment of our denomination in the past. And we've made the determination that we're not going to, to have enforced holy days in the church because we don't have the right to tell you that a particular day is more holy than another. We, of course, have the weekly Sabbath. That continues to be a requirement, a moral requirement from God's moral law. But other celebrations, 
as long as you're not engaging in a sin and making that celebration the excuse for the sin of idolatry or whatever else, you want to celebrate Christmas or whatever other holiday, go ahead. We're not going to enforce it on anyone else or forbid it. So it would be legalistic to declare all alcohol consumption to be sin or all holy days to be forbidden or required, either way. That would be to bind the conscience beyond what Scripture teaches and therefore would violate Christian liberty of conscience. But if you're convicted that you shouldn't do one of those things, for me to coerce or tempt you to do it, would be sinning against you. We saw that much more in depth when we were dealing with 1 Corinthians chapters 8-10. through 10. Paul explains quite thoroughly in Romans 14 his position on these things. He says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So over things that are uh, that are doubtful, things that are in matters of indifference that aren't clearly taught in Scripture, we ought not to be disputing about. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, Each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Now, again, in context, we know Paul is not saying that the church should never make judgments concerning sin or anything like that. He's saying on matters that are theologically indifferent, just to leave one another alone. Matters of conscience that are not clearly taught in Scripture, we leave one another the leeway, the liberty, to handle those things as we see fit. So that's the principle for Christian life. What God has not forbidden may be done. It's a matter of individual conscience. I'll just mention here that worship is a bit different in Scripture. It's governed by what we call a regulative principle. So there's a normative principle for Life. So if something's neither commanded nor forbidden, you're free to do it or not, as you so choose. The, the regulative principle of worship is the inverse of that. Of course, what God commands must be done, but when it comes to worship, if God has not said, you shall worship me thus, then if he has not 
commanded something as an element of worship, he forbids it. We see this set forth uh, first in scriptures like Deuteronomy 12, where we see in verses 29 through 32, where Moses is speaking to the people before they enter the promised land, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? I will also do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So don't be looking for it to outside sources for how you should worship the Lord. Think of where it actually ends up leading people in their paganism. <laughs> Think about that. And then he concludes, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it or take away from it. So when it comes to worshiping the Lord and the particular covenant we're under and the covenant era that we're in, we are to worship God the way he commands and not according to man's ideas. But the general principle for Christian living is a normative principle. It's that we're not to bind the conscience beyond Scripture. Otherwise, we would be doing what Jesus condemns in Matthew 15, 9, teaching as doctrines the traditions of men. Now, the opposite of legalism, where we bind the conscience more tightly, so to speak, than the Scriptures say, is what we might call libertinism or antinomianism, which means against the lawism. Now, this would be a total rejection or uh, or at least a significant rejection of parts of God's moral law. The teaching that because Christ has set us free, anything goes. Anything is permissible. One version of that is that we should prove that we believe that we're saved by grace and not by faith by sinning all the more. And Paul, of course, says, should we sin all the more, that grace may abound. God forbid. This is rampant, of course, in liberal churches today. The view that we should, we're not bound by God's moral law any longer, that in Christ we're free even from that. Here's what the confession says. They who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty. You know, that's not the reason that God gave us that liberty, right? which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And the whole purpose of the liberty that God gives us from sin and its consequences, from our vain attempts to overcome it by keeping the law ourselves, which we can't do, is so that we can be free to serve God and to serve him out of love and not out of mere fear of judgment. To use that freedom then to exercise sin all the more. To use it as an excuse for sin is all the more heinous. It's like accepting a great treasure from a generous, loving father and then spitting in his face. Galatians 5.13 You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
In fact, using freedom as an as an occasion for sin should be proof, or could be proof anyway, that you're maybe not really saved. Second Peter two nineteen says of libertines and their followers, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. As we find in the New Testament, you're going to be somebody's slave. Either you're Christ's slave, either you're owned by him or you're owned by sin. You're owned by Satan. And Christ is a much easier master. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. Now all this is not to say that there aren't times when those given authority by God to govern, whether it's civil authorities or church officers, can't exercise wisdom in governing actions that, uh, where God's law leaves, the, leaves them unclear, leaves you free. God's law says nothing about how fast you drive. But that doesn't mean that the state of Kansas would be sinning by telling you, in this place, we don't want you to go faster than 25 miles an hour. In this place, we don't want you to go faster than 65. Your freedom of conscience doesn't give you the right to drive 80 miles an hour through a school zone. So the, the confession says, And because the powers which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ hath purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another... They who upon pretense of Christian liberty shall oppose any lawful power, can't say it in, in, in Christ, I'm set free. For freedom, Christ has set me free, so I'm not going to pay my taxes this year. <laughs> the the uh, confession says, those who upon pretense of Christian liberty say that kind of thing, shall oppose any lawful power and the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. And for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or conversation, or to the power of godliness, or such erroneous opinions as or practices as either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ hath established in the church, they may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the church." 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. If they're not commanding us to sin or forbidding us from obeying God, we should obey the civil government. Any church officers, uh, church officers have the right to determine what's most conducive to the health of the church on matters that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. According to God's law, we are to have public worship on the Sabbath day. What time we worship is going to be determined by the elders, the local elders. You know, if you refuse to attend public worship because you'd rather be at, be at 10 o'clock instead of 1045, well, that still leaves you subject to the discipline of the church for refusing to attend public worship. They should be warning you of the sin of, of failing come to public worship. So, in Christ, you have been set free. You're set free from any vain attempt, any attempt of your own to be good enough when you would have to be perfect under God's law. 
You're set free from all the guilt and the fear of judgment that come from your sins. Uh, you have a right sense of, of your sin. You understand that there's guilt there. And that right sense of sin does produce that guilt. But you're set free from sin and its consequences. You're set free from its dominion and the sting of death. You know because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that if you die before He returns, your death is but temporary. You're set free from superstition and from legalism. You don't have to be bound by anything beyond what Scripture teaches about worship or about how to serve the Lord. You're set free from the taint of sin on your actions so that you can do good works out of love for God and He accredits them to your account, even though you couldn't have done them except by the power of the Spirit dwelling in you. You're set free from love of sin. doesn't mean that you won't have sins that are besetting and that, that you find yourself more attracted to than others. But you don't have to be attracted to that sin. You're set free to serve your God. Set free from man's vain additions to God's law or corruptions of it. You are free in Christ. So use that liberty to serve Him well. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the liberty we have in Christ Jesus. We pray that You would continue to sanctify us by Your Holy Spirit, that we might not use our freedom as an occasion for sin, but rather that we might use it to serve you freely in love for the sake of Jesus our Savior, as we pray in his name. Amen.